You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. Acts chapter 5, we're going to read a pretty big chunk of scripture this morning. Uh, But that's okay. Starting at verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in the name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 
When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, carefully consider what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all those followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if, they pur- for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So once again in this story, we find Jesus, or we find the apostles of Jesus in the temple, and they are preaching the name of Jesus. And not only are they preaching, but they're also healing and casting out demons and generally upsetting the peace. I mean, we have to be honest about that fact. That's what they were doing. They were upsetting and disturbing the calm. They were bringing disorder to the order of the temple. They were provoking in unrest. There was a certain way for things to be done. There was a certain norm that was to be followed within the temple. And these men, the apostles, were not doing that because of the name of Jesus. I mean, you almost get the sense as you read Luke's account here in Acts that these apostles had achieved rock star status. The people loved what they were preaching. The people were enthralled because of the miracles that they were doing in the name of Jesus. And they were so overtaken by the disciples that they were laying lame people down in the streets just hoping that Peter's shadow would pass by. I mean, you get the sense that they're like a a throng of teeny boppers outside of a concert just hoping that, I I don't know, Justin Bieber, I don't know, would like touch their hands. I'm not really sure, but that's, that's the sense that you get here. Now, all of this attention that the apostles are getting causes the religious leaders to be jealous. So they flex their muscles and put all of the apostles in jail. I want you to notice the similarity between what happened in today's text to what happened in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are going into the temple and they're going through the beautiful gate. And as they, go in, as they come to the gate, there's a man who is lame begging there. And Peter and John don't have any money to give to the man. Instead, they they heal him. And as a result, they are brought before the religious authorities. And they're told or warned to stop preaching about Jesus. And then they're sent on their way. Now, some scholars actually wonder, you know, are these the same story being told twice? But there's some pretty significant differences. Uh, here, all of the apostles, it's not just Peter and John, all of the apostles are arrested. And they're not just arrested, but they're put in jail. And not only are they put in jail, but then they're dragged before the Sanhedrin, and then at the end of the story, they're flogged. So there's all of these differences here. And I think the important thing is to notice not just that these stories look the same, but that we see this progressive intensification of the opposition 
to the movement of God in Christ. First, the religious leaders and the authorities take on Jesus and only Jesus. We have to admit that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when all of the Romans came to arrest Jesus, they could have arrested all of the disciples in that moment, but they didn't. They just arrested Jesus, and they just tried Jesus, and they only kill Jesus. Then, after Jesus rises from the tomb and ascends up to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes, then Peter and John are arrested in the temple. And they're not put in jail and they're not flogged. They're simply given a warning. And then today, today we have all of the apostles. All of the apostles being arrested. It's as if the religious leaders and authorities are trying to kill this new sect without overacting, overreacting in a way that angers the crowd that seems to be sympathetic to, to the message of the disciples. And so they arrest them and they put them in jail. And while the apostles are in jail, the Spirit of God comes and does what the Spirit of God is going to do for all people. It sets them free. We learn later in the story that the guards are still out front. They're still standing by the door. And the, and, and the locks to the jail are still locked. It's like Jesus who walked through the locked door of the upper room. The disciples walk back out into the temple gates. And they begin preaching Jesus. Now the religious leaders, they come back to the temple after a night of of probably very sound sleeping, knowing that order has been restored as they put these troublemakers in jail. But they discover when they arrive back at the temple that order has not been restored. In fact, their effort to restore order through force has been co-opted by the Spirit. And now, now the disciples are out there doing the very thing that they arrested them for. So they haul them back in before the entire council and they put them on trial. And when they put them on trial... Peter does what Peter does. He preaches. And he shares the gospel. And he says something along the lines of, we must obey God over and above the laws of man. And here's why. Here's why we must obey God over the laws of man. The God who made the covenant with our forefathers, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who made a covenant with Abraham and said, you will be a father of many nations. The God of Isaac who said, despite your wife's barrenness, she will have two children and they will be the birth of two nations. The God of Jacob for whom the birthright of Isaac was given to him over his brother because Isaac uh, loved him. The God who raised Jesus from the dead. That God says that no longer are things going to be the way that they used to be. New life has come. And it was secured to us by Jesus who hung on a cross. And I know what our scriptures say. That our scriptures say that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. But Jesus hung on a tree. Jesus was cursed and was in a place of humiliation and degradation. But from that place, God exalted him to his right hand as prince and savior. And the reason that God did this was that so whoever repents would receive forgiveness of sins, would experience salvation. And we, we who you arrest 
trusted our witnesses to this fact. And now, now we're standing before you, not as defendants, but as people who are inviting you to in, into this kingdom so that you might experience forgiveness and salvation as well. I, I want you just to stop and, and just note, to, to, to note that, that, that it seems like Peter is not here giving a defense of himself. I think so often, because this is a courtroom setting, we would tend to think like, Jesus, like Peter is trying to make the case on why they should be set free. But the more I read Acts and the more I read about the early church, I don't think that, that Peter is making a defense of himself. I don't think that Peter is trying to prove that he's not guilty. That wasn't a concern of his. I truly believe that what Peter was doing in that moment was preaching the gospel so that he might invite those who were on the Sanhedrin into the kingdom of God. It seems like when when the disciples are persecuted, their first instinct is to preach the gospel and to invite the very people who arrested them to experience the good news that they have. That to me is an astounding fact. I mean, just think about that. Think about being arrested for your faith. Think about being arrested for healing someone and showing compassion. Think about being arrested for preaching about Jesus and then having your first inclination to be, I'm going to share the gospel with them. Not, I'm going to get even. Not, I'm going to get free. Not, how, woe is me, my rights are being taken away from them. No, no, no. First inclination is, they need Jesus. And I'm going to share what I know about Jesus with them. And for Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, it isn't just about what's been done to them. I mean, this is the same council that oversaw the trial and the, the crucifixion of Christ himself. And now they're standing before them saying, this Jesus who you crucified died so that you might be saved. Will you repent? Will you recognize him as God's Messiah? Will you open your minds to the possibility that forgiveness awaits you and is right here, right now, waiting for you to accept it? Only if you repent. I mean, I'll be honest that these are the stories, these kinds of stories that are littered throughout the New Testament. These are the stories that make me fall in love with Jesus and stir my heart and my imagination for the kingdom of God. Because what we see is not only that Jesus was willing to die for those who would kill him, but that Jesus lived and taught and modeled a life that was so attractive and so appealing and so inspiring to the disciples that they would imitate him. When Jesus said, love your enemies... He, he wasn't just appealing to some philosophical idea, but it was an ethic that Jesus himself lived out. And it was so compelling that the disciples heard that teaching and saw what that meant. They saw that to love your enemies might mean that you end up on a cross, and yet it was so beautiful to them that they themselves did it. They laid aside aside their pain and their grievances and their fear and they extended an invitation of salvation to those who would condemn them. Let's be honest and say that this laying down of self is uncommon. 
There's not a lot of places we can point at and say, like, that's where it's lived out. That's where it's embodied. But I also want to encourage us to begin to think that it should be common within the church. I think there's two things in these opening chapters of Acts that we as disciples of Jesus are challenged challenged to think about and challenged to accept. First, it's this. If we are following Jesus, then we can expect resistance. And I think we need to be careful about saying that we can expect that because I think a lot of us do say, yes, we can accept resistance. But I also believe it's very easy for us to baptize any resistance that Christians are experiencing as resistance for, because of persecution for Jesus' sake. Not all resistance, not all persecution, not all marginalization, not all pushback is because we are following Jesus. Sometimes the resistance and the pushback and the marginalization is there because we are cherry-picking what teachings of Jesus we follow and which we do not follow as we engage in culture wars around us. And there's enough knowledge of Jesus and his teachings, or at least you know, people have this idea of Jesus out in the culture to recognize the grossness of some of what exists within church and Christians in their public life. And so it's met with resistance. And, and so I think we have, to be a, we have to slow our roll a little bit as it comes to just baptizing everything as, well, that's persecution and that's resistance because we're following Jesus. I think we've got to ask ourselves the reflective question about whether or not it really is. And, and author Sky Jathani had a really succinct way of asking this question. He says, do people hate you for acting and living like Jesus or for not acting and living like Jesus? And we have to distinguish between those two. We have to distinguish and, and, and say, with, with the Spirit's help, I am seeking to live like Jesus. And in living like Jesus, there is resistance and there's opposition and there's pushback. Which is very different than than not living like Jesus. But saying that we're followers of Christ and experiencing pushback. And if we are living like Jesus, it will be life to some and it will be death to others. And so we will experience some pushback. We can expect that. But then here's the second thing that we see from these opening chapters of Acts. That when we experience pushback, do we meet it with the gospel? I think that's the challenge for us. And I think that the only way that we become the kind of people who can experience opposition and pushback and resistance and meet it with the gospel is if we are a people who are constantly submitting ourselves to the gospel and to the implications of the gospel on our life. And I think it's that second part that's the hardest. The implications of the gospel on our life. The gospel of grace and forgiveness and freedom, it sounds and is wonderful. We need that. We cannot lose that. But sometimes I think that 
that we believe the entrance into the kingdom of God or the entrance into this forgiveness of sins and all that is there is just a mere mental assent. It's just describing ourselves saying, yes, I believe those things, but it doesn't have any rollback on our lives and how we are to live. But, it, but freedom is found in repentance of turning from our old life and moving into a new life, of taking off our old self and putting on our new self. Freedom is found when we die to ourselves and we carry our cross daily. And, and that means that, that Jesus, in his salvation, as we move into the kingdom, says, you, all of you, now belongs to me. Your whole life now is wrapped up in the kingdom of God. Your thoughts, your actions, your time, your energy, your beliefs, your ethics, your politics, your identity, all of it now must die and submit itself to Christ. Like that's, that's the call. And this is why Jesus encourages us to count the cost. To stop, to reflect, and to ask Am I willing to live with the implications of following Jesus and declaring him to be the Lord of my life? Am I willing to adopt his ethic, his way of life, his teachings about God, his call to love our neighbor? And that's a hard question to ask. It's easy to say yes to, but as we so often talk about, to really examine our hearts and our minds becomes a much more difficult endeavor. And yet I believe it's absolutely necessary because if we don't, I think we run the risk of becoming Gamaliel. The Pharisee who speaks in front of the Sanhedrin. I'm afraid that like Gamaliel, we can see all that Jesus is doing in the world and we can hear his gospel and we can have the invitation to participate in the kingdom of God extended to us and it's met with skepticism. It's met with this passivity that stands back and says, well, we'll see what happens. We'll see what, amounts, what this amounts to. We'll see if it really makes any difference in somebody else's life. We'll just, we'll just see and, 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 and observe in order to determine whether or not this is of God. And we failed to respond. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Let me expand on that a little bit. I think it is possible for us to be in church week after week and month after month and year after year and miss out on the fullness of the gospel despite hearing it and being invited into it over and over again. I think it's possible for us to accept parts of the gospel but not the whole of it. And I think there are parts where we stand back like Gamaliel and just watch is it true? Is it really true? And we view it with suspicion and apprehension and maybe even some resistance. 
And I say that because the gospel will always push against culture and our conception of the world in very real ways. And whether we are conscious of it or not, our, the impl- we understand the implications of submitting wholesale to the gospel, and it's scary. And so using this text, I want to look at two ways in which the gospel may cause us to stand back. The, the gospel and the implications of the gospel may cause us to stand back like Gamaliel and be a little skeptical. First, we don't want the gospel to disrupt our lives. We know that it will. Again, subconsciously maybe, maybe consciously, but maybe also subconsciously. We know that it will. It will bring disorder just like the disciples brought disorder out in the temple. And we don't want it to. See, those who arrested Peter and the rest of the apostles were the religious leaders of the day. They were known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin were responsible for governing all of the religious and political issues of Israel that Rome didn't want to deal with. So you have, at this time, remember, Israel is under the governance of Rome. Rome is the occupying force, is the occupying entity that really controls the country. But rather than dealing with the, the local idiosyncrasies and the local customs and the religious laws of the of the area, Rome handed that over to particular people in that place. In, in Israel, it was the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin took care of the way that things were supposed to go in the temple. They made sure that they kept the peace. They dealt with all of those small day-in and day-out things. In order to maintain their power, they had to make sure that order was kept. Because if disorder happens, if unrest begins, then Rome is going to come in and Rome is going to deal with Israel and with the Sanhedrin with some force, right? If there's any sort of uprising, Rome's going to come in with their military and just shut it down. And if the Sanhedrin didn't do their job, they're going to get removed. Somebody else is going to be put in power. And so it's likely both for political and religious reasons the Sanhedrin feel threatened by the disciples, right? The people love the disciples. The people are responding to their message. And if the people side with them, then the Sanhedrin loses power. They lose influence. Or if the disciples decide to use their influence to start a revolt, Rome's going to come in. And in either case... Those who have influence and power over society feel threatened. And so they respond. They resist the gospel. They resist the invitation into the kingdom of God. And they condemn and they can judge and they they condemn and they judge and they execute punishment in order to keep their lives the same. We live in an age where political and social influence of Christianity is waning. Christendom, this age in which the church was the dominant force in shaping society and culture, is coming to a close and we are swiftly moving into a post-Christendom era. And one response to this shifting of influence and power has been to fight and to claw for continued political power. In many ways, that's what the last number of elections have been about. 
It's been about the fears of losing power and the effort to keep power. It's been about ensuring that our rights and our positions are protected. And those fears and those anxieties that are underneath the surface cause us to be suspicious of teachings of Jesus that well, they just don't seem to fit into our world. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. I mean, that's a great bumper sticker, but come on. How does that really work out in this world? Love your enemies and pray for your good? That is no way to maintain influence. That is no way to secure your position. That is no way to make sure that your life continues the way that it is. To see ourselves as citizens of heaven and resident aliens of the kingdoms of this world? To find freedom not in holding power, but by giving up power? Just as Jesus himself made himself nothing, but took on the very nature of a servant, so we also must be willing to be made last? No, no, no. No. I'm going to prefer I'll just stand back. I like the forgiveness of sins. I, I, I like the possibility of eternal life, but... I don't know how I feel about that. And like Amelia, we stand back and say, if that's really of God, well, I'll I'll see some evidence of that. And we meet it with skepticism. Then there's the second way, I think, in which the gospel challenges us. After the Sanhedrin decide to stand back and see what happens, they have the disciples flogged, and then they release them. And upon release, what do the disciples do? They rejoice. Now, what do they rejoice at? Do they rejoice because they've been set free? Nope. They rejoice because they've been deemed worthy to be disgraced. Who wants that? Any, anybody, anybody wake up this morning going like, I would like to be count worthy to be disgraced. What I'd really like to, is to be humiliated and degraded. That sounds amazing. And flogged, right. Yeah, n- no one. But here's the dirty little secret about the gospel. Victory comes through suffering. And we don't want to suffer. So much of our society is putting safety measures in place to keep suffering at bay. So much so that when we suffer, and I think this is true of almost anyone, but even in the church, this is true. When we suffer, we, we ask what we did wrong and what we did to deserve the suffering. What we don't see is suffering as an opportunity to enter into a deeper understanding and experience of the gospel. And I'm not saying that we as followers of Jesus should go out looking for suffering. I don't think that we should put ourselves into places where we are to suffer or disgrace. But we should expect that it's going to come to us. It's going to come to us through opposition and resistance. It's going to come through us, to us through the consequences of sin. It's going to come to us through illness and death. Suffering will come. And it isn't that evidence that God has abandoned us. It's evidence of our humanity. 
And the necessity to remind ourselves that Jesus entered suffering and through his suffering brought us the victory of God. In other words, it is precisely in the place of suffering that God will meet us and we will experience the victory of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so if we resist suffering, if we try to pretend that it's not going to get us, if we put all these safety measures in place so that we never suffer, if we ignore it when it comes our way and downplay it and pretend that it's not really happening to us or it doesn't really hurt us because we're impervious to the world around us, we miss out on the opportunity to experience the fullness of the gospel and the victory of God over suffering and pain and death. We hold it at bay and we play Gamaliel and say, yeah, 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 I, I like the life part, but I don't like the death part. I, I like the victory part, but I don't want to have to suffer. In fact, we kind of twist it and say victory means we never suffer. But that's not what we see here. And to experience the fullness of the gospel, we need to recognize that, that it's precisely in our suffering that we find God. I think, I think the way in which we press deeper into the gospel is by adopting a posture that's different than Gamaliel's. Gamaliel met the preaching of Peter and the invitation into the kingdom with skepticism. And I think we need to adopt a posture that is a cousin of skepticism. Curiosity. They seem almost the same, right? But skepticism... Skepticism has a resistance to it. It has a suspicion. It has a, has a, I'm not believing this yet, bent to it. Whereas curiosity, the best way I can describe it is that it's open. It's open to the possibility. So if we don't want to be Gamaliel and we don't want to meet the gospel with resistance, Perhaps what we need is just an openness and a curiosity. And for me, the best way that I can be curious is by asking the question, what if this is true? What if the teachings of Jesus are, in fact, true? What if forgiveness and grace and mercy are possible? What if God is willing to welcome us home like a son who has gone off and lived a prodigal life? What if embracing the idea that the first shall be last and the last shall be first is actually the way to freedom? What if the followers of Jesus do in fact win by losing? What if victory is found in suffering? What if this is true? And then to be curious about ourselves. Where am I resisting this? Why am I resisting this? 
How might I begin to accept it and live differently and live into the kingdom so that I might experience the kingdom of God? How do I need the Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me so that my first instinct, when I meet opposition, when I meet pushback, when I experience suffering, is to press deeper into the realities of the gospel? What, what needs to change in me? You see, this is the work, I think, of confession and repentance. Confession is to examine ourselves and to look at ourselves and to see the ways in which we are misaligned with the gospel. And during this Lenten season, this is the, what we are doing. We don't just look at the sins that we know or the sins that we talk about every single year at Lent. It's to examine our lives and to, to see where yet the gospel has, take, has yet to take root. And then we confess and we say and we name to God and to others. So that we might then hear the gospel invitation come back to us. Come. Come experience the kingdom. Be reminded of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Come. Know the fullness of all that he has to offer by holding to his teachings. And in that, you will find new life. This this is what God promises. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we give you thanks. That it is new life. Not just new life as in a life that begins after death. But new life that begins now. Eternal life begins now. And the new life that you offer is a life that looks like Jesus. And so I pray. I pray that we would wholly give ourselves to the gospel. That we would count the cost. That we would remain curious about what it might mean for our lives to be given more over to you. So that as we move through this world, we might be witnesses to Jesus, to his resurrection, and to his kingdom. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and may the the Spirit empower us to live. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.